So we remember last week we were in the first part of Acts chapter 5, and we dealt with the issue of hypocrisy as Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, uh, team decided to um, ignore what the Holy Spirit was saying and instead uh, act as if they were something they weren't. And we saw that the impact of hypocrisy was pretty severe. But that was also God's mercy to us. He wants us to be aware of, of how dangerous it is when we try to act, act like we're something we're not, when we put on a mask instead of being real before him and real with his people. And so it's a situation where, because that's going on, um, things are getting pretty serious. But God's still doing some pretty radical things. And really what we're going to see in the rest of this chapter is a, they're in a season where the influence of the gospel where the preaching of the gospel is going further and more and more people are getting saved. They're having a huge impact. In fact, we'll see later on in the chapter where, where the religious leaders are mad. They're frustrated with the apostles because they say, you're filling Jerusalem with this doctrine. And what a great thing to be accused of, you know. You're filling Norwich with the gospel. Stop it, you know. I'd love for that to happen. <laughs> and so, but there's this time, during this time when, when there's a great influence, of course, with that, also, there's a, an increase in resistance. So the, the gospel's going out, and people are getting saved, but also the religious establishment's not happy with that, and so there's resistance. And yet, through all of it, we're going to see how God shows himself to still be in control. And in the midst of all this persecution, when, when you think, okay, is this going to be it? Is this going to really start slowing things down? No, God still rules. So we're going to talk about that. In verse 12 it says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Now if you remember from back earlier in Acts, Solomon's porch is a section of, sort of, uh, of the temple area where the believers used to often meet. Uh, these guys go there, they're meeting again, and God's continuing to do these pretty radical signs and wonders. The, the Lord's doing things that were, you know, were really impressive, but also because of what probably happened with Ananias and Sapphira, pretty intimidating. And this is probably why you have the situation where people are like, wow, they really esteem highly the apostles. They see these, these Jesus followers as something you know, to be highly esteemed, yet we're not sure we want to be a part of them because people die if they get it wrong. You know? So there's a bit of like intimidation there going on. You know? So there's this mixture of, of in, being impressed and being intimidated by this, this radical work that's taking place. Um, but at the same time, look what it says in verse 14. But it says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So even within that, more people are getting saved. Multitudes of both women, men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, and at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also multitudes gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And notice, and they were all healed. One Greek language scholar says that could be translated, they were healed one at a time. And so it's this picture of, you know, during this time when, when multitudes of people are getting saved and the, the miraculous is, is, is being a bit intimidating, God just starts doing some really unusual things. We're going to see this again when we get to Acts chapter 19 with Paul, where it says specifically that God did unusual miracles through Paul. It's a similar thing here. It's a picture of people are so 
sure that God's doing something with these Jesus followers, and though they're intimidated by it, they think God's power is working through these guys, and so they're actually bringing their sick and laying them, so just the shadow of Peter passing by will heal them. And that's why it's important to recognize this, this idea of healed one at a time. It's this picture of, as the shadow goes by, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. I mean, can you imagine? Now, it's really important that we recognize that these are unusual miracles. Um, there's nothing in Scripture that would say that God doesn't still do miracles today. Uh, I, I, I've had the privilege of witnessing a couple in the 27 years that have been a Christian. God still does miracles today. But what we know both from experience and even more importantly from Scripture is God tends to do radical stuff in bursts. So, like, if you look at all through Scripture, you see, like, uh, there's, there's not much of the miraculous until Moses goes to, to lead God's people out of Egypt. And then there's this, this, this uh, display of God's supernatural power. And then, again, with the, with the people of Israel, you, we see God answering prayer and, and intervening in their lives often. We don't see the miraculous until you see, basically, Elijah, the prophet, come on the scene. And then, of course, his protege, Elijah. And then there's a season, again, of, of the miraculous. And again, then after that, you don't see much miraculous happening among God's people. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and then again, the miraculous. And again, then the apostles come on the scene, there's the miraculous. And so I, I bring this up because God seems to work in these bursts. And it seems like what he's doing here is he is wanting to um, do the unusual to confirm the eternal. He's wanting to make sure that these guys understand that this power that's doing this is something that's supernatural. It's powers to confirm what God intends to bring to pass. Um, now, all these people at this point in the book of Acts still, all the audience who's hearing these, these, this preaching, seeing these things, they're all Jewish. And so they would have been familiar with what the Scripture says in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord execute right, executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, the reason I, I wanted to quote that psalm is that I, what's going on here is that God is wanting to show himself through the hands of the apostles that he's still that God who heals. The God that they, they believed in, the, the creator God from the Old Testament, that creator God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the God who sent Jesus. He's the God who then, uh, through Jesus, sent the apostles. He's the God who, by his Spirit, came upon these guys and is empowering these guys to do all the things they would expect God to do. Now, I also think it's important for us to recognize that, that this is why God does still heal today. I believe God still heals today to show that he is above the broken sinfulness of this world. Now, I can't give you a reason why God doesn't heal every time. I can't. I mean, we could get into the whole issue of healing and say sometimes it's not because people, uh, it's because people don't believe or it's, it's, it's maybe because um, there's sin in the camp or those kinds of things. And I'm sure those things can affect these things. But here's the reality. The reality is God does still sometimes heal, but when he does sometimes heal in that short burst or on that unusual occasion, when he's supernatural, and I'm not talking about just we're praying and someone gets better, but there's a supernatural thing going on. When God does that, he does it to point to the eternal. Because our hope is not that we're going to get healed now, is it? Our hope is that just as Jesus conquered death, we're going to conquer death. That because he's alive, we're going to be alive. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the ultimate healing, isn't it? That's the healing that is promised in the work of Christ, is that we're going to have new bodies that never get sick. 
pretty amazing. And so God's doing the supernatural work to confirm that He is the one who's going to heal all our diseases. All of them. Then it says in verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the, uh, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles, and they put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to, all, speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, so the apostles are doing these radical things. And so what happens is the high priest, uh, who's, who's kind of the head of the Sadducees, and we'll talk about who these people are in a minute, but these religious leaders, they, they see this going on, and they're frustrated, and so they take them and they put them in prison. We've got to stop this stuff going on. We don't know how they're doing this, but we've got to stop this going on. It's, it's kind of competing in our turf. But they're thrown into the prison. What happens? God sends an angel to let them out of prison. God sends an angel to literally open the prison's doors and set him free. But when he sets him free, notice what it says. It says, the angel sets him free and says, go, stand, and speak to the people. In other words, he doesn't just set them free so they can go, oh, isn't it nice to be out of jail now? He says, I'm freeing you to go do what you've been called to do. So they're freed so they can speak the truth. And then it says in verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered the, the, the temple early in the morning and they taught. But the high priest and those who came, uh, those with him came and called the council, that was the Sanhedrin, together with all the elders uh, of the children of Israel and sent them to the prison to have them brought. Now, the Sanhedrin is a group of Jewish leaders who basically were in charge of, um, they, were, they, were, they were both in charge of the kind of civil and religious matters of the Jewish state. So, of course, Jews, the Jews at the time, Israel uh, during this time, was under Roman control. And so the Jews kind of had their own culture that was sort of within that area as they're in still that land that they knew was the promised land that God had given them. And yet these people were kind of the liaison. So these would have been Jewish uh, leaders who were kind of a liaison uh, civically towards the Romans and religiously towards the Jews. But these were Jews. Now, specifically, the Sadducees had this faith. Their faith was that the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible, that those were inspired by God, and those were the ones that were authoritative. And so the things that had to do with ethics and morality and God's, ways, uh, God's laws for those kinds of things, the things that had to do with, with uh, religious ceremony, that would show that they're the covenant people, those things stuck. Anything that was supernatural, nah, that really didn't happen. That, that really wasn't true. So they denied the supernatural, and they also denied the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in supernatural things, they didn't believe in the afterlife. So they were kind of, in a sense, like the theological liberals of today. That's what these guys were like. And so what, what you have is these guys are, are, are frustrated because the, these Jesus followers are gathering a, a following, and so they think, we've got to stop this, we're going to put them in prison. And it's interesting because here, here when these guys who don't believe in the supernatural throw them in the prison, what does God do? supernaturally get them out of prison. And it's, it's, it's amazing because what we have here happening is we, we have this picture of God providing freedom. And, and here's, here's, it's true that really, even when these guys were in prison, even when the apostles were in prison, they were still free. Because as the Bible says, he the sun sets free is free indeed. But there's also this reality of God showing, look, no matter what someone tries to do to enslave you, it's God who set us free. It's God who's the one who sets us free. 
And so what happens is in verse 22, but when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside the door before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And now when the high priest and the captain of, of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Like what's going to happen if these guys continue doing what they're doing? So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. These guys are just perplexed. They're blown away. They're thinking, How did these guys get free? How could that possibly have happened? It's interesting because uh, there's a lot of people who think that human beings don't really change. That once they've got into uh, bad habits or once they've began to do things that were destructive, that's it. They're always going to be in that place. It's part of what sort of, it's part of what's influenced AA to basically say, once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. That's all there is to it. And, and there's this mindset that says, you know, people can't really change. People can't really be free. And I think we have a picture of this with, with these guys. Here, here they are. They're being set free. Uh, they've been set free supernaturally by this angel. And these religious people can't understand how is it that these guys are free. And I think it's, it's just important for us to recognize that it's God who provides our freedom. And it doesn't matter what people try to do to us. That freedom can't be taken away from us. You know, he who the Son has made free is free indeed. Jesus was talking to a group of religious people, not Sadducees, but Pharisees in John chapter 8. And, and a lot of these groups of, of, uh, of Jews, a, lot of, a group of these Jews actually had believed in Jesus. It says specifically in John 8, he spoke to, to the Jews that believed in him. And he says, you shall, uh, if you abide in my word, he said, you're my disciples indeed. And he said, and you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they kind of said, whoa, wait a second, we, we do believe in you, but we've never been slaves to anybody, which is kind of bizarre, both historically and practically. And then Jesus says to them, uh, actually, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. He says, but he who the Son sets free is free indeed. God wants us to be those who walk in freedom. And even when people try to say, you're not really free, you're going to go back to your old life, you're going to do the same things again, you're not really free yet, it's just you trying to do religion like other people do drugs. Then we need to say, no, no, it's not true. God has supernaturally changed me. He's supernaturally changing me, and he set me free. So these guys get physically, of course, set free from prison. And then in verse 26, it says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. In other words, they get their kind of temple police, they bring these guys out really peaceably. They're not going to try to create a scene because the people love the apostles. They love to hear the teaching. They're blown away by what they're seeing supernaturally. So they don't want to get stoned for that. And it says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now remember the preaching that these guys were doing. That the apostles, when they would preach, they didn't hold back to give the facts, which is Jesus showed himself to be, you know, the Messiah, the Christ, and you crucified him. They would not; they were not afraid as they're preaching to the Jewish leaders specifically to say, or the Jewish nation, this is the Messiah you rejected. You crucified him. God resurrected him, and he's ascended into heaven. 
And so they're saying, you know what? You've, you're intended to bring this uh, man's blood on us. You're blaming us for this man's death. Now, what's interesting about this is that they were to blame, weren't they? I mean, this is what we see in, in uh, Matthew's Gospel. It says, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. This is, remember when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. So Pilate t- took water. He washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You Jewish people make a decision. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. And then they released Barabbas to them. Uh, then he, when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So when Pilate wanted to let him go and the Jews insisted no, he said, look, I'm not the guilty one. You're the ones who want him to be crucified. And they said, fine, blame us. But now that he's resurrected and, and they're saying it's your fault, they're going, hey, don't blame us. What's really happening here basically is that they're being exposed. And listen, there's nothing more frustrating for a religious person than to have their sin exposed. We, the more religious we are, the more we hate to have our sin exposed. When we come to faith in Christ, we shouldn't be afraid to have our sin exposed. One, we should know it's there. And two, we should know it's been paid for. That we've been freed from it. That, we've been, that we can be cleansed from it. We can be forgiven of it. So we shouldn't be afraid to have our sin exposed. I'm not saying it has to be a fun experience. I'm just saying that we shouldn't be afraid of it. But the more religious we are, the more we think, oh no, don't, don't, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. It's somebody else. These guys are having their sins exposed and they can't stand it. And so what happens is when they say, look, we told you not to preach this way, Peter in verse 29 says, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, this is not Peter trying to rebel against authority. This is Peter submitting to authority. He's submitting to the authority of God. The Bible is really clear in Romans chapter 13 that we are to submit to governing authorities. The Bible is really clear that we should respect those in authority. That's a, it's a really clear principle. It's really important for us to model that as believers. But there's definitely times when we have to obey God. When, when, I should say when we're obeying God to do so, we have to defy man. We have to go against what men want. That's all there is to it. Some people think, oh, isn't that harsh or isn't that rude or isn't that... Uh, prideful or being morally superior. No, it's being obedient. We have to do what God says we have to do. Now these guys are doing this. They're making this stand. And it's interesting because here, as they say, look, we ought to obey God rather than men. They do the very thing they say you need to stop doing. They say the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, what's to me kind of ironic about this is they're saying, look, stop preaching about Jesus and stop blaming us for him. Not only did they not stop doing that, but what's ironic about this is that this guilt that they know they have, the only way that guilt's going to be cleansed is by believing the gospel that's being preached by the apostles. That's the only way it's going to change. Now, when he talks about here uh, that we are witnesses and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who, who obey him, when he talks about the Holy Spirit bearing witness, I think he's talking about, first and foremost, Holy Spirit bearing witness through the signs and wonders. I think that's what he's referring to in this context, okay? 
There's, there is a reality that God's Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we're the children of God. That's true. But I think he's referring to more how the Holy Spirit's testifying, look, these works that are being happening have to be from God. And this is testifying that these guys are speaking the truth. That's what they're referring to, I think. But notice he says the Holy Spirit is, is given uh, to those who obey him. Now, some people take this to mean that, um, that you know, if you're a carnal Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you're a really good Christian, then you get the Holy Spirit. But the reality is, the Bible teaches you can't become a Christian without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's got to be a work of God's Spirit in you to, to, for you to be, uh, become a Christian. You need to be born again. So it's God's Spirit who shows you you need to believe. It's God's Spirit who calls you to, to or reveals to you the Jesus you need to believe in. And as you believe, what happens? God's Spirit gives you new life and comes and dwells in you. So once you're a Christian, you have God's Spirit, full stop. That's the way it works. That's what he does. But this is talking about, I believe, obeying the gospel, which is the very thing that these guys wouldn't do. This is why they're persecuting the apostles. They refuse to obey the gospel. Now, does that phrase sound weird to you, obey the gospel? It sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But this is, this is a biblical phrase. I want to show you guys. Check it out. It says, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, when the Lord this is talking about the Lord's return and Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica that was also being heavily persecuted. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is kind of a heavy verse, <laughs> in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and notice, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's writing this to people who are thinking, Lord, is it really right that these guys persecute us so much? And Paul's trying to say to the Thessalonians, uh, you know, be comforted. God's going to judge. He's not going to let people get away with persecuting his, his people. But also, it's interesting that he uses that phrase that he calls them believers, those who do not obey the gospel. The, the gospel is not an option that God hands to people. God doesn't say, okay, here's the option for you. You know, if you'd like it, you can take door number one or door number two or, or the gospel. You know, it's up to you. Whatever you want to choose. God and his authority commands that we believe Jesus. He commands that we believe the gospel. God says that. The creator of the universe commands. The same creator who says don't murder says believe the gospel. The same creator who says don't steal says believe the gospel. The same creator who says don't bear false witness says believe the gospel. He gives us a command. Now the reason I say this is not because we should go around preaching saying God says you have to believe because that's just going to provoke someone's flesh. You're not going to get anywhere necessarily. But it does mean, listen, it does mean this, that we need to recognize, we need to recognize that this is what the gospel is, that it's God's authority. So that it's not us who are proclaiming any authority. It's not us who are saying, hey, we say, or because we believe, we're saying, look, this is what God says. We're not making this stuff up. This is what the scripture says. This is what Jesus says. This is what the Bible says. We're not making this stuff up. So it's not us that they're rejecting. It's the Lord they're rejecting. I say this because it's important that we recognize when we talk about the fact that God, that God rules, He overrules man's authority. So that when men say, look, I, I can believe what I want to believe, you can believe what you want to believe. There's truth to that. We can. We, have, we do have that freedom to, to believe what we want to believe, don't we? We can choose to believe what we want to believe. That's true. But not without consequence. And that's what people have to understand. It's not, this isn't an issue of, hey, you believe what you think makes your life better, and I'll believe what I think makes my life better. 
The way the scripture deals with the gospel is God has spoken. God has shown himself and he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. But you have to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus because there's no way you can be saved apart from him. So God commands that you do that so you can be right with him. And we were actually saying, God, I refuse to believe you if we don't do that. I refuse to do what you say. Well, what happens when you pick a fight with God? You lose. And I'm not saying that to be harsh. And again, I'm not saying that um, here's the best way to talk to people about Jesus. But I am saying that we have this example in Scripture of a guy like Peter, of these apostles who weren't afraid to say, look, you have to obey God and believe the gospel. God says this. This is what it means to preach. Preaching doesn't mean you get louder. <laughs> People think, oh, teaching is when you calmly explain. Preaching is when you really make a point. No. To teach means to explain. To preach means to proclaim. It's to herald as fact. The king has spoken. That's what preaching is. The king has spoken. It's heralding. We, God said, here's what we have to do. This is why when God convicted me of my sin, on I guess it would have been on October 2nd, 1987, when I had that, you might say, an epiphany that I was a sinner, and that God was real, and I was accountable to him for my sin, and it scared the tar out of me. And I prayed my first sincere prayer, which is, God, I need to know you and do whatever you say. That's why God led me to a church where they'd say, here's the gospel you have to believe. And God the Spirit spoke to my heart and said, you have to believe this. Okay, God, you said i got to do what you say. i got to believe that this is enough. And it set me free. It set me free. See, we have this mindset that freedom means no authority. No. Freedom means the right authority. Freedom means we're, we put ourselves under the right authority, good authority, the best authority, God's authority. That's what freedom is. Freedom isn't the absence of authority. Freedom is being in the best authority and good authority. Unfortunately, in our pride, we assume that's us. I'll do what I want to do. It's not. It's doing what God wants us to do. And what he wants us to do is to believe the gospel so we can be free and forgiven. So they say this to him, and of course, verse 33 says these guys were furious, and they plotted to kill him. I mean, this is big time. They're, they're like, this is not just about we're going to try to keep you from preaching. You're going to die. Okay, you want to preach like Jesus, you're going to die like Jesus. That's what these guys are thinking. So what happens? Verse 34. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and he commanded uh, them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, uh, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew many, uh, drew many away after, or drew away many people after him, after him. And he perished. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now, Gamaliel, we don't know that much about. Well, we don't know that much about him, but we do know that he was, as it says, a well-respected teacher. We do know that he was the one. He had a famous pupil. You guys, anybody know who his famous pupil was in Scripture? No, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, learned under Gamaliel. Okay, so he, we know that. We know that uh, he was uh, fairly liberal in his views. We also know uh, that um, we also know that he was he was a guy who was using a bit of common sense wisdom here. 
Now, it's interesting, when he talks about these other people, this uh, Thutis and this Judas of Galilee, we know nothing about Thutis except what's mentioned here. There is a guy named Thutis that Josephus mentions, but it's a different time, so it's, probably, it's not the same guy. Don't think Judas of Galilee is Judas Iscariot, totally not related, but this guy would have been, uh, we do know about him from, from other history, we do know that this guy was like a, uh, a nationalist, he was a militant, he was a guy who thought what we need to do is kind of uh, by bring physical force to overdo, over, uh, take over the Romans, and that's what God would have us do, and so he rose up people. The bottom line is, Gamilio recognizes that religious trends, religious patterns, these things are, these cults and these groups, they're often short-lived, so just leave them be. You know, these, guys, these things kind of flare up all the time. So he's using some kind of common sense wisdom. And so he says to him in verse 38, and now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone for this plan or for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And what do they say? It says, and they agreed with him. And notice what it says. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So they agreed, but they reluctantly agreed. They decided, we're going to beat these guys as well. Now, here's the thing. We're talking about God rules. We're seeing this situation in the book of Acts. Gospels uh, increasing in influence, but persecution is getting heavier. But here's the reality. God's using these guys as choices. Gamaliel's using some common sense. What does God use that for? To give these guys more time to preach the gospel. More time to preach the gospel. These guys decide to, these religious leaders decide to beat the apostles and say, you can't speak in his name anymore. How do they respond? Look at verse 42. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've suffered. I, I have a few little times when I feel like I was really persecuted for my faith. And I did not rejoice, I have to admit. I thought, this sucks. <laughs> I don't understand, God. I'm trying to do the right thing. I know you said this was going to happen, but it shouldn't happen. It's just wrong. These guys rejoiced because they saw their suffering as a way that they were identifying with Christ, being identified with Christ. And this was the source of, source of joy. What's cool about this is that, you know, we sometimes think, God, why, why do you let your people suffer? We understand why, we do understand it's bad when anybody suffers, but we especially think, well, God, how can you let your people suffer? Shouldn't there be at least some protection? The same way a father protects his children. I'm going to protect my kids, you know. So why don't you protect your kids? Why do you let us suffer like this? And we forget that what God's wanting to do for us is what he was doing for these guys, which is to see them that they are, in fact, identified with Jesus. They're one with him. So as Paul says in Romans 8, not only do they, are they going to be glorified with him, but before that happens, they're going to suffer with him. They saw this as an honor. Now this is not, I don't think, the Bible encouraging us to court suffering, to try to find, try to find someone who will persecute us in Jesus' name so that we can feel good about ourselves. No. But it is a reality for us. It's like, okay, Lord, if you call us to obey, or when you call us to obey, and that obedience puts us on the wrong side of people, and they persecute us for us just simply wanting to obey you out of love, out of faithful love, then praise God, because that means we're being identified with you. We want to rejoice in that. We want to rejoice in that. 
God's using these men's choices. Some good choices in the case of Gamaliel, some bad choices in the, in the case of the Sadducees and the religious leaders. But he's using the choices to bring about something good for his people. And it says in verse 42, and daily in the temple, not just another time, but daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now remember what Christ means. It means God's chosen king. In other words, these guys, these religious leaders were saying, you know, you need to stop preaching the gospel. And they say, you know, we're going, to, we're going to obey our God and our Lord. And we're going to keep telling people he's the one who's worthy to be trusted and obeyed. I want to close with this, these verses from Exodus 34. Because I think it's important for us to recognize that what motivated these apostles to, to keep doing this, to keep pushing forward was that they believed that the God who ruled is good. They believed that he is as the scripture says he is because they saw that he is that way in the person of Jesus. This is, this is how the Bible describes, this is how the God of the Old Testament described himself. And you tell me, this doesn't sound just as Jesus is. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with Moses there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God's going to reveal himself. And I should probably remind you of the context this is Moses knowing that he's going to, he's supposed to lead the people through the promised land, or to the promised land, excuse me. And he's just saying, God, what I really need to know is that you're going to go with me. He's saying, God, I just need to know your presence is with me. And just if you show me your glory, that's all I need. I just need to know you as you are and see you as you are and know you're with me. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a glimpse. And God proclaims the, his name to Moses. It says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. In other words, God's not being unjust and letting people go free. This points to what Jesus would do and make in a way that God could justly forgive us for all we do. This is the God that was revealed through Jesus. This is the God that rules, and this is the God that motivated these guys to keep going. This is the God that we sang to. This is the God that we pray to. This is the God that we're called to obey. Amen?